Welcome to Deal Closers with Annette Tali, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Gino Bavaro. Welcome. Annette, I love the way you pronounce my name. It rolls right off the tongue, Gino Barbaro. Very good. Nice, <laughs> nice to speak to you this morning. I, I am so excited to have you. I went to your event in October and it was amazing. People, if you haven't gone to any events, I recommend you join uh, the uh, Multifamily Mastery events. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be in Orlando, the next one? The next one, I wanted to be in Orlando because it's an hour and a half from where I live. So I can drive there with the family. I can spend a couple of days in Disney with the family. So uh, we are going to make it in Orlando. Yes. Amazing. And I love it because it's close to me. It's driving distance, which is amazing. Yes. So let me tell you a little bit about Gino. Gino is an investor, business owner, and entrepreneur. He has been investing in real estate for 15 years and has grown his multifamily portfolio to over 1,500 units in six years. Wow, that's impressive. He has teamed up with Jake Stenciano to create jakeandgino.com, a real estate educational company that offers coaching and training in real estate investing. He is the best-selling author of Will Barrow Profits, uh, Gino is a graduate of IPEC, Institute of Professional Excellence in Coaching, and is a certified professional coach. He is also the author of best-selling cookbook, Family Food and Friars. He currently resides in Florida with, she, with his beautiful wife, Julia, and his uh, six children, Gabriela, Michael, Sophia, Veronica, Cecilia, and Laura. To learn more about Gino, visit his website, jakeandgino.com. Welcome. Did Thank I pronounce you. those names well? You're perfect. <laughs> they sound great. Thank you. So, Gino, tell us a little bit about you and uh, how did you get into real estate? Uh, my parents are both immigrants from Italy. So when they came over, uh, they met, they got married, and they had me and my brother as kids, uh, two, two siblings. I wish we had more, but that's all. We only had two. My father got into the restaurant business because that's all he knew. That's what immigrants did, right? So I'm eight years old, and I go to work with him at the restaurant. And I remember saying to myself, is this what everyone, every kid does? They go to work at their dad's restaurant. That was, my, that was my idea. That's what I thought everybody did. And I just ended up going to college. I got out of college and I ended up going into the restaurant business with him. We bought a restaurant and I owned it for about 20 years. You know, and I always had real estate in the back of my mind. You know, my parents were really good with money. They were good savers. They ended up buying a couple of little properties. And that's what the attraction was to me. I thought, you know, let me do my, my W-2 job, my little business and get their ex- excess capital and invest on the side for real estate. And that, that's what I ended up doing. But, but the Great Recession came in 2008. And I, everything I think changed. I think small business changed. I think the internet completely disrupted all small businesses. And I realized that. And I said, I'm working harder. I'm making less. I need to do something different. I've got a big family now. And I said, let me go into coaching because I had done a couple of deals pre-2008. And like everybody else, my mistake was that I didn't get educated. I took massive action, but I got into the mobile home park space. I bought a strip mall up in New York and I made these mistakes because I didn't really get totally educated on, on, on the space. And after those mistakes, I said, let me go, let me get some coaching and let me go to life coaching school and see what I really want. And for me, I knew that I didn't want to stay at the restaurant anymore. I knew that I didn't have control. I always had the illusion back in the seventies and eighties and nineties 
it really was different back then. You could have a small business. You, you could thrive the middle class. I mean, if we go back to 1971, when we got taken off the gold standard, all of a sudden inflation took place and, and our parents were, you know, were the, they were, they were lucky at that, that, that time. If you think about it, all the inflation, all housing is going up, wages are going up and they live in the good life and they've got pensions and they're working with companies that they don't get, they don't get laid off. Things are different now. So I realized that and I said, my job is risky. I need to do something different. So I met Jake back in 2011. Uh, we, he moved to Knoxville, Tennessee. I ended up uh, investing with him on our, on our first deal. It took us 18 months. And then from there, I said, this is viable. But Annette, I didn't, want to, I didn't ever think I could leave the restaurant. I said, you know, let me just take a little piece of a deal. Let me just start building a little passive income. Let, let, me, let me just get one. And then we got the next. And then I said to myself, how am I going to scale up? And then we ended up finding a partner. And then the, us, the three of us started buying deals and then we started refinancing the deals and then more, more deals came along and it was just a process of being lucky. And then finally saying to myself, you know, the coaching really helped out. I can do this. Let me just focus on this. And that's where we've gotten to now. So it wasn't, I just want to do this full time in the beginning. I just wanted to make a little bit more money. No, that's, that's true. I mean, a lot of people are scared to, to do the, the big leap and especially mm -hmm. if you have a family, you don't want to leave the safety net of your job and mm -hmm. just go, you know, straight into a business that may or may not work. Mm -hmm. But you touched on a point that is very important. You, the coaching helped you to know that you could do it. Mm -hmm. uh, because we always, you know, tell ourselves that, you know, I'm not going to be able to do it. Uh, it's not possible. And I was just doing a life about that, that, you know, because I do it to myself sometimes, you know, I want to do something and then I'm like, no, maybe I cannot do it. And we have to change that story in our heads mm -hmm. that is preventing us from doing the next thing. I think a couple of things that everyone can do to combat that. The first thing is to get a partner, have a partner who's like-minded like you, who can push you, who can hold you accountable. Uh, in the last six years, we've done a lot. We've written two books. We've started an education company. We have a property management company. We started a syndication company. And I can probably tell you with almost certainty that I would not have been able to do all that by myself. But having somebody next to you and pushing you and you pushing them at the same time and getting different you know, ideas across, along with having you know, a great spouse, that all helps out. You can't do it on your, all by yourself. And that's what multifamily is, is all about. It's really about building a team. It's, it's a team sport. It's not by yourself because there's so many different facets to it. Find out what you like about it. And don't think that, you know, getting into multifamily, Jake and I, we got in and buying our own deals. That's not the only way you, you, you need, to, you can get into it. You can start raising capital for other people. You can do day-to-day -day operations. You can bring some net worth to the deal. You can find a deal. There's so many different functions of getting into multifamily that I think people overlook and they only have that mindset of there's only one way of doing it. Absolutely. And that's one of my goals this year. Uh, I would like to find a partner that is like-minded, but also mm -hmm. not only because of the ideas and, you know, the accountability, but also to share the workload. If there is mm -hmm. a lot that you can do and doing it by yourself is going to just take longer. Mm -hmm. so you can do so, it by yourself. It's going to be a lot of work, but, you know, finding a partner, I think is key. And the way you find a partner is by going to events. I mean, you said you went to our event and that's one of the ways go to meetups, go to RIA's, speak to people doing podcasts, you'll, you'll find a lot of people out there who are like-minded like you. If you have a, you, those meetups are great. Just go out there and make sure people know what you're doing, talk to them and make sure you have your core values set out and your mission statement set out. So that when you meet somebody, you're like-minded, you know, Jake and I, we have people first. That's one of our core values. We have a growth mindset. We're always educating ourselves and that's what we want. And we're always, you know, do what you say and say what you do. That's what we live by. And that's what, 
partner should be. They should really be like-minded. And I think one of the most important things is you need to like your partner because you're going to be speaking with them all the time. If you're, if you're there and listen, if you want to partner off with somebody on one deal, that's fine. But if you're going to create a lasting partnership, your families are going to be intertwined. It's like a marriage. Your, your families are intertwined. Your business is intertwined. So just make sure that you like the person you're getting involved with. Absolutely. Yes, that's great advice. Thank you. The Deal. All right. So let's talk about the deal. What deal are we going to talk about today? You know, I was thinking, let's talk about the first syndication we did a year and a half ago. I could talk about our very first deal we did six or seven years ago. It was 25 units. But I think the syndication is probably, is probably better because it was our first one. It was a little bit small for us. We could have bought it by ourselves internally. But Annette, it's one of those things in life that when you want to rip off the Band-Aid and start, you know, let, let's start. There's, there's just, you know, like you said, talking in your head, am I going to be, be able to raise the money? I've never done this before. Um, so we can talk about our first syndication back in November of 2018. It was 132 units. 132 units. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So how did you find this deal? Bootstrapping. Just like every other deal in multifamily. We were, it was in Louisville. My partner, Jake and Dylan, they were in Louisville touring properties with a broker, kept looking around. It was a long day. I remember it being in August and they finally said, you know what? Let's go home. We haven't found anything. The broker says, I've got one more deal to show you. Brought him to this property, 132 units. Jake gets out. He sees the old man there. He sees the family there. They're working the deal. It's their only deal. They're the typical mom and pop apartment owners that they haven't done anything to this deal. The, unit, the rents are $500 a month. They should be $700. It's a brick building built in the 70s. There's a, they, they cut their own grass. Everything was screaming our third deal. So that's how we found it. We found it through a broker relationship. So you have to go out there. You have to network with the brokers. That's why when you're starting out in multifamily and you're a new investor, you really need to choose one tops two markets because you really need to get in there and start creating, I would say a team. The team consists when you first start out of brokers. You need to meet with brokers. You need to start doing property tours and you need to really know the, you know, how to actually analyze a deal in that market. Every market is a little bit different. So getting in there, learning the brokers, creating those relationships is the most important thing. And when you're first starting out, if you're too scattered, it's really hard to do that. Agree. So how do you get these brokers to take you seriously when you are new and you, you know, for example, I have 12 units, but they are not a large, you know, a 132 units. Mm -hmm. How do you form these relationships with them when you don't have the portfolio? So when you first start, when we first started out, we all find that challenge. And it's funny because I have a thousand units that I own by myself and a total of 1500. I had to start from somewhere also. So everyone uses that excuse as a limiting belief or, or what we call maybe a real energy block of, you know, how can I do it? I haven't done it yet. For, when you first start out, I think you need to have clarity. I think you really need to create a one pager. You really need to be able to be educated more than anything else, because I think a broker will take you seriously if you know what a cap rate is. If you know that in Knoxville, Tennessee, it costs $4,500 per unit to run a property. If you know what CapEx is, if you know the different types of financing strategies, if you know how to speak the lingo, that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is if you can really be, you know, do what you're saying, say what you do. If a broker sends you over a deal to analyze and he sends it over to you on Monday, don't get it back to him on Friday or her. Get, get the deal back to him Monday afternoon and say, thanks for sending it over to me. I think you, you think, especially in this type of the market, it's really, really competitive. I think the third thing that you can do is what we call create a credibility book. I can share you my credibility book that I have. And, you know, for us, when we first started out, I was fortunate because I had a couple of small properties. I had a fourplex. We had the restaurant with a couple of units. 
I had another mixed junior property. So, you know, the credibility book is basically your business plan. It's basically why you're investing in the market, what your strategy is. If you have any assets online, we have a lot of students who've created them. You send that over to a broker or you bring it when you're doing a property tour, they're going to look at it and go, you're really prepared. You know what you're doing. You've got, you've got your, you know, your business plan worked out. You can use that with investors. You can use that with bankers, mortgage brokers, real estate brokers, with your partner, whoever you want to use that. That'll give you a lot of clarity. That'll give you cred instant credibility right there because they know that you're ready. And the other thing is you got to go on property tours. You have to make face to face with the broker because there's a lot of people out there calling up and saying, Hey, you know, can you send me the numbers and they'll throw in some LOIs. But if you don't go visit these properties, you're considered a tire kicker. So you really need to get out there and start looking at deals with brokers. Okay. So looking at the deals with brokers and yes. you said, uh, you got to create a one pager. What, what, what is a one pager? So a one pager, I can share my, or one pager also. It's just basically who your team members are, you know, what your strategy is. We have, we have the three proprietary steps, uh, framework. It's buy, right, manage, right, finance, right. So when we put that on our one pager, a broker can see, wow, they've got a plan. They're going to try to buy these assets, right? They're going to use financing, whether it's community financing, whether it's private lending, whether it's CMBS, whether it's agency. And then the manager portion, we're vertically integrated. So we manage our own property. So that gives us credibility. If not, if you're using third-party property management in the market, find the property management company that you like and put them on that one page so the broker knows, oh, wow, they're using this property management company. They're not going to just, you know half-assed as people say. So the one page will give your, will give that also that strategy. And they'll also give you if you have any assets in the market. So that's, that's what a one pager is. Oh, okay. So do you send this one pager to the broker before you meet? We them? do. Yeah, we do. We'll definitely do that. And I mean, are we, you know, the NMHE had a big event this past week. So going to events and meeting brokers at events is really important. Um, getting brokers on your podcast. That's a great way to meet brokers, right? I've had a lot of brokers on our podcast, just talking to them and getting them out in the community, propping them up, positioning them up and letting them share the podcast with other brokers is a great way to get your name out there. Oh, that's a great idea. I will implement that right away. <laughs> <laughs> and let me tell you, I created my credibility book and I took it with me to the bank when I bought mm -hmm. my six unit and it mm -hmm. was, they were impressed, you know, with, with all the stuff that I had. And it's like whatever experience you have, you just put it in a book and present it nicely. And That's right. And take you more, ser more seriously. And you know what it is? And it is a little bit of work, right? I mean, it doesn't take two or three hours. It might take you eight to 10 to 12 hours to put it together. And that's why a lot of people don't put it together and, you know, designing it, getting some nice pictures. It doesn't have to be overwhelming with the word wording, but it has to look at least presentable, put some nice pictures in there and spend some time on it because it'll give you clarity. It'll make you focus on what your strategy is. You know, one part of our strategy is to refine role. Well, how do you do that? You know, you have to sort of explain it in the book. You're buying, you know, undervalued, undermanaged assets. You're trying to raise the NOI and then you're trying to refinance that, that, that money and then going into the next property. So by speaking that and by writing that in your credibility book and getting that over, I'm telling you, most brokers have never seen it before. So you'll, you'll definitely, you know, stick out uh, to, to, the average, to the average buyer. And also you do it once, you spend those 10 hours and then you don't have to do it again. Maybe That's in right. a couple of years you have to update it, but you yes. know, you're going to reduce it so uh -huh. it's one time. That's right. I agree. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to the deal. Um, so, okay. So you found it with a broker. Uh, what was the listing price? There was no listing price. They just knew that they needed a number. They needed to get $6 million for this deal because they had very little debt. This was their retirement. So it was 132 units. Uh, we ended up paying $5.9 million for it. 
this kind of this deal right here was our first syndication. So we weren't sure what we were going to do. Let me let me just tell everybody right now, you know, what we're teaching our students right now is really the three pillars of real estate. It's really the market cycle. It's the debt and it's the exit strategy. So on this deal, we weren't sure if we were going to refi this deal. If we're going to sell the deal after a couple of years, we weren't really clear on that. We knew in the market cycle, we're getting this deal at a good price. We're paying $45,000 per unit. Three years ago, probably would have paid thirty-five dollars per unit, but that's, that's not where you are on the market. You have to follow the market, right? Cap rates are dropping. Uh, we ended up having to come up with 70% LTV on this because the, the rents were so low. The rents, I think, was generating $65,000 a month in rental income. So the, the rents were low, but we knew that the rent should be seven to seven fifty in this market. So uh, we had to raise an additional $300,000 in capital. And I guess that might be one of our mistakes, maybe raising a little bit too much capital um, because that when you raise that capital and you're giving a preferred rate of return, you've got to give money back to the investors, right? But being our first one, we weren't sure. And then, you know, I guess it's sort of a blessing in the skies because what happened after, you know, 12 months, we're, we're rents and our income is at $85,000 per month. It's up $20,000 a month. And what I had said, what was our strategy? We were not really sure. We were fortunate on the debt component, the debt piece, that we got something called um, step down. Instead of yield maintenance, it's only a step down prepayment. So it's going to be like a 2% prepayment penalty, 2 or 3% prepayment penalty if we sell this asset, which I think we're going to be doing. We were putting it on, on the market in a couple of months. So it gave us that flexibility. Um, and that money that we had put aside, we actually ended up using that. We're painting the buildings outside. We're doing more CapEx than we traditionally normally would have if we were going to hold it because we're getting it ready to sell. But on that property, we put in a dog park. We put in a gazebo. We put in some really nice lighting. We did work on the, the, uh, the landscaping on the property. So we put some nice, really nice amenities on that property because when you're going from $525 a month to over $700 a month, the first three months are tough. The first three or four months are very difficult because you're going to be losing tenants. Tenants are going to be moving out. And as they move out, you want to really fill up those vacants. That's the first step. And then the second part was they didn't have rubs on this property. There's no ratio utility billing. So the owners were paying for all the utilities. So we implemented that also. And in Louisville, they have um, most landlords also charge for a pest control fee. So $3 per month for pest control, we, we were able to implement that towards the tenants also. So it's great to do this, but at the same time, you've got a couple of things going on. You've got tenants moving out because the rents are going up. You're fixing up units. You're doing all this work on the exterior. We also, you know, the driveway, we seal the driveway. So it's the first three or four months are going to be rocky. And we're fortunate because these are different individual buildings where we can go building to building. We just had to wait till the um, leases were up. And for us, it's been the process for like the last, from, the, from November till now, we're in January. So we're almost at market rent with all of the units right now. So it's, it's been, a, been a long process. The first three or four months, like I said, we're rocky. But then once the tenants, and it's funny, Annette, you'll see the tenants complain. They'll complain about the rent we're going up, but at the same time, they'll say, you know what? This place is much safer. The lighting is much better. The apartments are much nicer. So there's pros and cons. You just have to stick to your strategy, just stick to your plan and continue to work that because we knew in that area, rents at 700 and they're going up because Louisville is starting to sort of boom. It's a manufacturing town. There's a lot of jobs moving in. So we might even be under rented right now. So we're just, and the part of the exit strategy goes, we're leaving a little bit of meat on the bone for the next buyer. So when the next buyer comes in, if they want to come in and really upgrade the units and go from 700 to maybe 900, they could possibly do that in this deal. Wow. Yeah, that's... Uh, so how did you 
how did you negotiate it? Because you bought it a little bit, not too much, but was that negotiation easy? Were they stuck with the six million or? They were stuck with the six million. And you know what? Probably a year or two, let's say a year before we saw this deal, we might've lost it because you know we, we really want to buy on actuals. So if you're buying this thing on an actual five and a half or six cap, it was probably below that. But we knew that we had already executed this plan on our very third deal. And the third deal that Jake and I did back five, four or five years ago, it was the same exact deal. It was so mismanaged and we knew it and we were just so, we were just so, um, what's the word? We were so, so secure that we knew those rents were $200 less. That's why on the front end, we had to come up with more, more money, on, more money down because or else this deal would not have worked. If the rents were a little bit higher, then we probably would come with, with an 80% LTV, but that's the thing. So we had to come up with more money on the down payment. We wanted to raise that little extra because we thought at 130 units, if you spend $3,000 per unit on average to turn, you know, with flooring and paint, it's like three fifty to four hundred thousand dollars. So that's that's where we got that number from, and we didn't use it all. We haven't used it all yet, but we've used it a lot on the exteriors. So for us, that was the challenge. You know, you have to figure out where you think you're going to go. You know, what the price is and what the value adds are. So now in the, in the market, they're they're trading between sixty five thousand and seventy thousand unit, the same assets. So we knew that we had enough cushion that, and that's the thing. And that remember, I was talking about the exact exit strategy. If we don't want to sell this, we can always refinance this thing, take some more money out, and hold this for the long term because it's still going to cash flow really nicely for us if we decide to do that. So, but when you raise capital for this deal, um, mm -hmm. you have to present the investors with an exit strategy. Mm -hmm. What was your, your holding time and your exit? Yes. So for us, it was a five to seven year hold. Um, we figured, you know what, we're going to hold this between five and seven years. And this part of the cycle right now, you know, a few years ago, in, you know, syndicators were doing three years, three to five years, because they said, you know what, we're still elevating. But right now, if you go to a 10 year hold, investors are really wary of that. They don't want to hold an asset that long. But I think anyone who is reasonable can understand that we're going to have a downshift. I mean, the, 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 the decade of 2010 to 2020 is, the, I think, one of the only decades in history that we haven't had a recession. So there hasn't been a recession yet. So it's coming sooner or later. So that's what we're talking about with the debt component. You want long-term fixed rate financing on these, on these deals because let's say next year, all of a sudden, you get a big recession, your rents drop a little bit and your debt comes due and you have to sell the property. You might have to sell the property less than what you paid for. So if you've got long-term fixed rate financing, you're holding it, you can hold through that period. And that's why five to seven years will give you enough cushion that, you know what, it goes down you're going to be able to ride it out in the next two or three years, the market's back up. So for us, we told investors five to seven years where we wanted to hold it. We didn't really discuss selling or refinancing. It was either one or the option, but we knew that there was a lot of cushion, a lot of uh, you know trajectory on this from 45 a door, that even if we go back into a recession, this thing is not going to go below $45,000 per unit at, at you know, $700 a month in rent. It's not going to do that. So fixing that rate long-term, and having the idea to either sell it or refi within five years was, was our ultimate goal. Okay. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of people going uh, five to seven years and even 10 years on the situations mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you don't want to have your debt due right when the recession is. Yes. But in multifamily, wouldn't it be a little bit less risky just because you are not, your, um, your value is is not depending on the comparables, but more on the rents and the income. So mm -hmm. even if your rents go a little bit less, you're still going to be value at the in, at, with the NOI, right? 
Mm-hmm. It depends what happens with cap rates. Let's say cap rates stop compressing and start going up. You're, and you're based it on a cap rate where you bought it something in a five cap. And now three years from now, the economy goes bad and money starts rotating out of multifamily and going into gold or going into stocks or going overseas. Cap rates are going to rise from no, from no fault of your own. All of a sudden, you're going you're gonna to lose money in the property. But that's been happening over the last five, six years. Cap rates have been compressing and from no one else's fault but their own. Even if they've held it and done a terrible job, their valuations are going up because cap rates are going down. So your fear is, you know, in the next five years, if cap rates decide to tick up and you're holding this thing and you're cash flowing it, you don't care because you don't care until you have to sell. That's the thing. So if you can hold on to this thing long-term, it's one of the strategies right now that I think you, you can employ. And what we're doing right now, we're experiencing, we're trying to think of uh, other strategies, other ways to hold these deals long-term for syndication. So there's a gentleman named Sam Freshman. He wrote a book. Uh, it's like the little red, it's a big, thick red syndication book. What he does is he does return of capital, not return on capital. He does return of capital. So if you put $100,000 into his deal, he's returning all of your capital. And then once it's all returned, it's a long-term hold. So he's been doing this for 50 years. And he said one of his biggest mistakes was selling real estate because he says real estate traditionally will go up on the long term. So I think on our next indication, we want to employ that because we want to have some of these assets for the long term, for the generation. And he's had people in his portfolio that that have owned assets with him that they've passed away and they're, siblings, their they're, 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 they're next of kin have, have inherited that. So that's a really cool model. I just don't know if it's going to fly with the investors, but I'd love to employ that kind of model because I've seen what it's done for me being able to hold some of our assets long-term and being able to cash flow on them and being able to really you know stabilize them and hold them as for cash flow. That's where the true wealth goes. If you just continue to buy the asset, then you know after a couple of years, flip it out and buy the next one, then flip it out. That becomes a big job, it becomes a lot of work, and it's a different mindset. But I think Sam's model, if you can, you know, employ that with with your strategy of flipping, let's say, and then holding some for long term, I think that's a really cool way to, I guess, hold it and really diversify yourself. So it, let me see if I understand it correctly. So you buy it with the investors, mm-hmm. and then you pay them back, and then you keep you keep it with them. Yes, you keep with them. Yes. So and then, then after paying them and uh yes. Here. Yep. I think after after the, after their initial investment's done, then maybe you can go to a 70-30 split. But they get all their money first. And then after they get all their money first, now some some syndicators are like, you know what, if they do a catch up or they want some of the cash flow, they're not gonna get any of that in the first couple of years. So it's 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 a little bit more difficult. But you're getting the acquisition fee up front and you might get some asset management fees, but you want to give them all their capital back, return the capital, and then after that's done, then you guys are partners on the deal going forward in perpetuity. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That's a good idea because I am uh, buy and hold too. Mm-hmm. I don't want to yes. sell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that would yeah. be a good option to, to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So how did you finance the deal? So what were the, the, the percentages? How much did you raise? How much did you use a bank? I'm assuming what type of loan. Tell me about mm-hmm. it. So for us, we got an agency loan. It was a... It was, um, it was a Freddie. It was a Freddie loan. I'm trying to remember. It was seventy percent LTV. Um, it had the step down. It was not yield maintenance. It stepped down. Uh, the rate was in the mid fours. Like I said, we had to come up with seventy percent. We had to come up with thirty percent. We raised two point six million dollars in this deal. So it gives us a little extra cushion with the acquisition fee and all that. Uh, we did it in twenty. We did it in forty eight hours because we were really prepared for this because it was our first one. We had, we, had, we had done those multiple events. We had two events, live events. We had the Jake and Gino community. So for us, when we started the syndication company, we had a lot of substantive relationships already. So when we put it out, we created a webinar. We created the excitement. 
uh, we created you know, the launch. We had a lot of soft commitments. And then when it went to hard commitments, we just put it out there and we opened it up and everyone noticed that, you know, they see the price per door. They see what the business plan is. It was a, it was a, I don't want to say it was an easy raise, but we were able to close that relatively, relatively quickly because they saw the debt was good on it. They saw the business plan was good on it. They saw how we pitched this, the city of Louisville was, this is workforce affordable housing is just the perfect asset to own in that market. And for us, we were able to raise it within 48 hours, like I said. So, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was good. It was good. And, and the thing was that, you know, I tell everyone start, you know, think big, but start small. And for us, we started small for this, you know, for us, because we could have bought this ourselves. If we couldn't raise the capital, we could have bought our own capital to this deal. So for us, it was a comfortable deal. We were able to, you know what, if we can't raise the money, we can, we can fund it ourselves, but it's big enough that, you know what, we can make a good amount of money for investors. So that's, that's how we started out with that. We didn't want to start out with a $20 million deal in our first deal. We said, let's find something that's, that fits our wheelhouse. That's a mom and pop that we can do ourselves, but at the same time, let's, let's test the syndication out. Okay, perfect. So, um, I don't know. I think we skipped the part where, how did you negotiate with the owners because they wanted the 6 millions, mm-hmm. but then you paid what, uh, type we, of, uh, no negotiation, really. Yeah, no, no, really no negotiation because it was, a, it was looking back at it, it was a fair price. That's what they wanted. It didn't even go on market. It was totally an off market deal. I learned and, you know, do you want to take 50,000, 100,000 off? We probably could have, but it was just a great deal right there. They had a couple commercial units there. One of the commercial units wasn't rented. They had some stuff in, the, in, the, in one of their units that we had to take out. But other than that, we knew what they wanted and we sort of gave them the price because it didn't even go on market. I'm sure that if this thing went on market, it probably would have sold for 50 a door or something, something much higher than what we, we had paid for. So when it comes to that, I always, I always tell people with negotiation, it's really emotional, logical. They were really emotional. They were stuck on that price. And for us, okay, that, that price works fine. There was really not much to trade on it. It was in pretty good shape. I mean, basically, you have to go in and do the interiors and all. But for us, it was it was okay. You want that price? Well, let's work on that price right now. So, yeah, no. So I think one thing that I was told before, like if you are, you have to think like an investor. You know, if if that money, the difference in price is gonna make, what's the difference in thirty years mm-hmm. if you're financing it in thirty years? Mm-hmm. Is it gonna be you know twenty dollars? You know, mm-hmm. a payment, is that mm-hmm. worth it? If you lose that property for that amount of money, is it worth yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Yes, then I agree. Mm-hmm. Expert tips. All right. So now we're on the part of the show where you're going to give me three tips and you want to give me three tips on parenting and money. Give you more than three, but I'll, I'll I'll put three tips on parenting and money. I've got my oldest is twenty and my youngest is five. So we talk about money a lot in the household, and you know we homeschool our kids. So you know school, money, everything. We're always together. And when my first couple of kids were growing up, I would always want them to read books. I would want them to read The Richest Man in Babylon, Rich Dad Poor Dad, at a younger age. And my first tip is don't overwhelm your your kids let them learn at a natural progression and let it happen. Because if you push them too much and you don't make it enjoyable, they're going to really regret it. They're really going to hate it. So don't overwhelm the kids. All right. I think the same, it's part of it is also keep it fun. I mean, we play rich dad, we play cash flow, right? But you know, that's for 12, 13, 14 year olds. It's not for eight year olds. They're going to be bored out of their mind by playing this game. So make it appropriate. Keep it fun for them. I think the third one, well, second, third is be the role model. 
if you're going to be talking about money and you want to talk to them about saving and a credit and, and all this other stuff, if you are not the proper role model, if you're not consistent with your message, it's like if you go to a doctor and the doctor's 300 pounds and he, and he or she smokes and they're talking to you about health, are you going to believe that doctor? Is there any credibility in it? Well, it's the same thing with your life. If your financial life is out of control, you have credit card spending, you have car payments, you, you know, you're just, you're, you're out of control. And then you're trying to teach your kids about it. Take a step back and be the role model yourself. Be what you want your kids to be. We lose sight of that. And they can see the BS right away. They'll, they'll, they'll look right through it. The next one really is teach kids how to save in a smart way. When kids get money for Christmas or for their birthday, especially when they're younger, don't take it from them and put it away in a savings account. I mean, you can do that, but to them, that's pain. That's, you know, they don't understand. They don't understand the difference between putting money away. Where did it go? It's not really mine. If you can, if you want to bring them to the bank, if it's $20, put 10 in the bank and give 10 to them to spend, to enjoy it. Because that thing is you want to teach them about delayed gratification, right? You don't want, you don't want that instant gratification, but at the same time, if you're taking the money away from them, they don't understand that. So they'll start creating the habit of, you know, when I get money, I need to spend it because if not, dad's going to take it away or it's going to go. And so when they get older, start talking to them about saving and, and make them make that, make that causal relationship between this is why we save. And for my son, quick, quick example was two, three years ago, he wanted to buy this amplifier. He plays music and he wanted to spend $1,500 on an amplifier. He had $5,000 in the bank. And I could have said to him, you know what? It's your money. You can spend it. But I actually said, no, I'm not going to let you spend 25% of your net worth on something that you don't need because you already have one. So for three months, he wore me out. I said, no, you're not. I'm not going to allow you to do that, even though it's your money. Fast forward a year after that, we bought a deal. I let him invest his $5,000 into the deal. Now we're going to be refinancing this property. He's been getting owner draws. And now he made the, the relationship between, wow, saving. I had that money. If I had not gotten that money and spent it on Amplifier, I would not have been able to save that money with dad. And he's gonna be able to refi all of his money out. He's been getting owner draws and he made that relationship between, you know what? Savings is a good thing. Saving for an asset is a good thing. And now he's looking at the money he's getting. What's he gonna do with the next? He's not talking about any, any, any kind of amp. He's talking about investing into the next deal. So don't make savings a painful thing. Don't take money away from kids the same way to put it away. Try to make it like, you know, try to keep it together with them. Oh, that's, that's awesome advice. Mm -hmm. I have my kids, they have their own, uh, you know, like, a place where they put their money. Yes. Uh, and they have it in the room. Each one has it in the room. So they That's get great. it in the room. And yes. every time we go shopping or we go out and she wants to buy something, I'm like, oh, yeah, you can buy it with your money. Do you mm -hmm. want that? Yes. Okay, let's take it out of your money. It's like, no, 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 leave my money. Mm -hmm. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> That's right. And that's great because the problem is with credit right now and credit cards, money's sort of fake to them, right? But if you can let them touch it and it's tangible and they, they use their own, it's empowering too because it gives them the decision to buy it. Mike, do you want to buy another amplifier? Yeah, dad. Okay. You can buy it. You, you know, utilize your own, your own capital or do you want to use that capital to invest in the next deal? Hmm, maybe I'll invest in the next deal because the cash flow from that deal will help me buy the amplifier. See how you make that connection. Telling them and letting them do something and letting them be part of something is so much more powerful. Yeah, well, my daughter is seven and my son is three. So yes. they, I don't think they understand. <laughs> no, not yet. Understand yet. Exactly. Yes, exactly. No, but empowering them and letting them make that decision with their own money is the most important thing because as they become adults, they can make their own decisions because they've been taught to make their own decisions. So I think that's really cool. And, you know, I'm going to ask you something about these tips. How do you 
get your kids involved in, involved in your business, in your business, but willingly? How do you get them excited about it? Because you know, my kids are uh, five and seven, seven mm -hmm. and and three, and uh, you know, they see me, you know, going to the, my properties, and they see us. You know, yesterday we went to buy stuff to Home Depot for the handyman to fix, and mm -hmm. you know, she comes with me sometimes to pick up rent, and you know, to pick up the coins from the laundry, and I make them count the, the mm -hmm. coins from the laundry. And the other day she asked me how much I was going to pay her for it. <laughs> That's good. That's the first question. My son was uh, with the restaurant. All my kids, the first four kids worked at the restaurant before we left New York. And uh, my son, remember him being eight years old, he was there getting like $10. He, first, second day he asked grandma, when am I going to get a raise? So, I mean, I think that's pretty cool. I think just let him enjoy it. Let, let him enjoy being part of it. And at that age, they're really young, have conversations about it. But as they get older, have them start working. My daughter, she edits all my podcasts. She um, does a lot of videoing for me. My son was 17 right now. He's going in the office with my brother who works with us also. He's going through all the videos. He's read all of our books. So we've written a couple of books. So the 14-year-old is, is reading our book right now. Let them be involved with the process. And we love multifamily. So the 14-year-old, I'll go to open houses with her. So I think it's a lot of fun to talk about real estate and to show them that it's life-changing and just let them be involved in those conversations. It's never too small to talk about money. So that's what I would do. Just continue to talk about what you're doing. And also within that, you're doing something cool. I mean, we're doing something cool. We're, we're providing housing for people. It's not just an investment. So if you can tell your 14-year-old, you know, we've got employees, we're helping employees with their lives and we're helping residents with their lives and Jake and Gino were helping students with their lives. So you saw all our kids at our live event. They all work at the live event. They're all selling merchandise at the live event. They're, they're all part of it. Now we have boot camps for our students also. So my son flies out with me and we teach at our boot camps for our students. So having them just part of the, part of the conversation and part of the business is, uh, is really cool. I love that part. Yeah, when we were counting coins, she asked me for fifty percent of it. Fifty? That's pretty good. So I'm saying that's <laughs> good. Work towards it. Like, let me pay ten dollars now, and then maybe next time we talk about uh -huh. that. I like that. That's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time and and chat with me and add so much value to my audience. Uh, where can people find you? And, you know, I know your website, jakeandgino.com, but I think you have also a book, a new book out. Mm -hmm. Tell us uh, yes. So I just want to thank you for having, um, having me on. I wish Jake could be on, but uh, just a honeybee. Go to jakeandgino.com forward slash honeybee. You can see a few videos that we have on there. We're going to have some audio from the book itself. I love the book. It's just a great, it's just, you know, when you first start out, you never know the possibilities of multifamily because it just grows. There's so many different multiple streams and so many different businesses within businesses in multifamily. And it's really scalable. It is a business and there's so many different facets to it. So that's what I love about it. So just go to jakeandgino.com forward slash honeybee. And also just check out all the podcasts behind me. You'll see all the podcasts that we have behind. We have a, we have a channel. Uh, go out there and check that out also. I, and I, let me tell you, I love your podcast. I listened to like 30 of them in a row before I went mm -hmm. to the, the live event uh -huh. and they were amazing. I was taking notes. I was trying to get my husband to, to listen to me. So I would lis listen with him when we were driving to, to work. Uh -huh. uh, so it was really, really valuable information. So people, you. you know, download the podcast and listen to it. It's really amazing. Thank you. Right? Thank you so much and uh, have a wonderful day today. Take care, everybody. 
This was Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.